We're reading the sermon text, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Good morning again. If you're visiting with us this morning, I would like to say welcome to Parksville Baptist. And... Um, our lead pastor is away this weekend. My name is Barry. I'm not the lead pastor here. His name is Paul, and he's getting a bit of an Easter break this weekend, uh, a little bit later than the rest of us, but uh, trust that he will be refreshed by having a weekend off. We're going to continue in the series, though, in the book of 1 Corinthians, as has been read by Chris. Sometimes when you are looking for the best way to concisely put the meaning of a text, you find that not in your own words, but in other words from the Bible. And I believe that the, the best concise sermon that can be preached to expound what the Apostle Paul has to say in Corinth in these words are the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Laodicea, where he says this, You say, I am rich. I have possessions. And I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel to you buy, to buy from me gold refined by the fire. 1 Corinthians 4, in the passage that is read, is a little bit of a fulcrum text. It takes us from a dialogue that Paul has had with the Corinthian church on the subject of wisdom, and we're going to be moving into some of the practical issues that the Apostle Paul will address in the church in Corinth. And as we make that transition, this text introduces a couple of dynamics that will be with us for the rest of the book. The first dynamic is this. The Corinthian spirituality is the kind of spirituality that builds palaces. I am rich. I am satisfied. I have need of nothing. It's the kind of 
of spirituality that, that builds palaces. Well, the Apostle Paul contrasts himself. He says, I'm, I'm living out in the street, and I'm, I'm, I'm living like the refuse of the world. It is a spirituality that sells itself as super spirituality, a powerful spirituality for, for powerful people. But the Apostle Paul is probing this, this kind of spirituality and the wisdom that is, it is based on to show that it is, it is not so super. Rather, that it is a spirituality that is based on a worldly wisdom that goes beyond the word of the cross. He says, you've gone above it. You've gone beyond. You've gone above the word. Don't do that. Don't go above and beyond the word that has been given to you, particularly through my stewardship of the gospel that's been given to you, introducing you to the mysteries of Christ. And they've gone beyond that. And it's like, you know, churches have, have crosses on them. A good church often will have a cross on it. But a church like Corinth, you might as well, at the top of the cross, put a flagpole on it and run up the flag, worldly wisdom. It was an integration of the cross and worldly wisdom. The second dynamic is this. There's something personal going on here. I hope that you could sense that in the words of the Apostle Paul, in the rhetoric device that he uses of sarcasm, in the dramatic tone that he takes with the Corinthian church. There's something that is deeply personal that has to do with the Apostle Paul's apostleship. It's another dynamic, again, that we will see through the rest of the book. His words are a dramatic contrast between himself and the church, and they reveal something for the Apostle Paul that is both personal and painful. You can just almost feel the, the, the pain in the Apostle's words as he addresses the Corinthian church in the tone that he uses. It's bad enough that the people who call themselves Christ-haters hate me and abuse me and malign me and say all kinds of bad things against me. It hurts when those who are Christ-lovers puff themselves up against me. And there's pain very, very clearly. The Corinthian church see themselves of, of having surpassed the Apostle Paul and having no appreciation for who he is. He has described himself uh, in, in the previous chapters as merely a steward of God's, of, of God's uh, harvest, of, of God's building. But he is a steward of God's building. The Apostle Paul isn't looking for fame. He's not looking for glory that isn't his. But nevertheless, this fact remains. He is the steward of God that built the very foundation for which the Corinthian church was to be built on. And the Corinthian church appears to have, have uh, transcended this wisdom that the Apostle Paul brought to them. And viewing this man as a weak man, which Paul uses the sardonic tone to address. But they've gone beyond the words of the cross, and they've puffed up their chest towards him like, like a frog. You know the picture of those frogs where all of a sudden they can just bloat out their, their, their whole body, and all of a sudden they're, they're twice the size. That's the word picture that is used with the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. They have become puffed up. So the main point that I would like you to take home with you today from this text, if I lose you, if you don't get anything else from what I have to say from this significant text this morning, this is what I would like for you to take home. That it is highly ironical 
ever catch yourself being ironical? Let's avoid irony with the gospel, okay? I say that in the office and in meetings sometimes. Let's, let's try to avoid being ironic. In other words, the, the things that we profess and uh, the way that we actually speak and act, let's not become an irony, a contradiction. But it is highly ironical and dangerous. And Paul's dealing with something dangerous, so the dramatic tone that he takes on. And, and this is a church that is on dangerously good terms with the world. It's ironical and dangerous when people who profess faith in Christ despise the lowly paths of the cross that Jesus himself has pronounced blessed. You see, all of the things that the Apostle Paul describes about himself, those are the very things that our Lord called blessed. And it was read for us a few minutes ago from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And not content with the things that Jesus pronounced blessed and instead seek worldly ideals of greatness. And you see, our world has ideals of greatness. There's, there, there's, there's no doubt about it. What are you going to call great? There's, in, in, in the, the dialogue that Paul has had with Corinth with regard to wisdom, and making it plain that there, there's no such thing as an integration, uh, 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 a coming together of the worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. You, you can't integrate the two. There's no such thing as a, as a hybrid wisdom with a cross with a flagpole on it that says worldly wisdom. What are you going to call wisdom? There's no such thing as a hybrid. Some of you drive vehicles. It says hybrid on the back. You know, you know what that means. It means it can use this or it can use that. Whatever, whatever situation serves best, the car will use. Well, the, the Christian life isn't lived like that. Whatever situation serves me best, I'll use the worldly wisdom or godly wisdom. Some of you plant trees. My wife was so delighted last week. She got to plant trees that are, I think they're called hybrid trees. She might correct me on that, but, but it, it, it's grafted. I think that's the right word, grafted. She's got four different kinds of apples on one stalk. You can't graft worldly wisdom onto the wisdom of the cross. It simply can't be done. And so Paul does a couple of things here in these words to the church in Corinth. First of all, he confronts their spiritual conceit, and, and that's what it is, really. It's a, it's a spiritual conceit, and he confronts it with a series of rhetorical questions. Uh, which are such a good device just to make a person stop and think, what do you have? What have you got? Show me. What have you got that you weren't given? What is it that you are so proud of? Don't those questions work well? And with the Apostle Paul and the, 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 the flow of the text that we'll see, there's, there's more than one thing actually going on in those questions. The first thing, of course, is that you haven't received anything except by the grace and mercy by the hand of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to earth, died for you, rose again, and offers you salvation in his name only. You have nothing outside of that. You have no possibility of ever standing before God and saying, this is what I got. But there's also a second dynamic going on here. It has to do with the personal, the personal, the, the boasting against the Apostle Paul and against the Apostles. The relationship that says, what, what do you know, what do you have for a foundation outside of me, of my preaching? 
What, what do you know of the mysteries of God? What do you understand of the purposes of God and Christ outside of your apostles? And so Paul confronts their, their spiritual conceit. And secondly, he follows that with a, a very emotive series of remarks that are, are highly sarcastic and even sardonic, using himself as an object lesson. This is, this is what my life is like. And he, and he throws himself out there like, as, a, as an object lesson and contrasting two different lives. And he says very, very deliberately, I'm, I'm convinced that I've received this from the hand of God. In other words, he, he doesn't understand the things that he's going through, the trials that he has, the difficulties that he has. He doesn't understand them as a, as a matter of fate or just stoic compliance. He says, I've received this from God's hand. And he contrasts that and says, now this is what you imagine you're receiving from God's hand. Okay. He contrasts these, the, and he's been talking about wisdom, he's been talking about worldly wisdom, talking about the wisdom of the cross, talking about the incompatibility of the two, and then he lays it out there. He says, this is what my life looks like, this is what you imagine your life looks like, which is wisdom. And he marks worldly wisdom by two things. The first one is this spiritual conceit, and he uses this word puffed up for the first time. He's going to use this word a half a dozen times in the, in the course of the book. Puffed up. Spiritual conceit cut, cuts deep wounds. Have you ever felt judged? Have you ever felt the eyes of spiritual conceit looking upon you? with contempt, looking upon you with contempt for your smallness, for your weakness, for your failure. If you only understood better, if you only knew more power, if you only understood what it really looks like to live in the Spirit, God has all of this for you. Perhaps you'd have a better job, you'd have a bigger house, you'd have better health. And the Apostle Paul says, look at I'm, I'm thrown out like the scum of the earth. He literally, at the end, uses, right now, at this time, I am like the waste that you scrape off into the garbage, which was used to describe the lives of those who's, who were so useless and so uh, obscure that their lives could easily be used for human sacrifice because nobody would miss them. And the rest of the book will be addressing this kind of, of this, this kind of spiritual conceit, this, this dynamic. If you only knew, if you only knew what, how, to, how to live in the power that God has for you, you know, you wouldn't feel so restrained in your sexuality. You wouldn't feel so restrained by your gender and your, and your marriage. You wouldn't feel so constrained in, in the way that you fellowship and worship and all of these things. It's a dynamic that I say, it's introduced here and it's going to be with us for the rest of the book. A spirituality that builds palaces and a contesting of the authority of the person who has given them the very mysteries of God. It's a fascinating dynamic. The other mark that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul addresses is not just a conceit, but this illusions of grandeur. Illusions of grandeur and to, to address that illusion, this conceit, Paul employs a very dramatic rhetorical device of sarcasm. 
Now, I wouldn't encourage the use of sarcasm in our own lives. If you're like me, you've spent your life trying to get rid of it. You realize that it's really not helpful. I have Proverbs 16:24 emblazoned on my mind. Gracious words, Barry, gracious words. Gracious words are like a honeycomb that bring life to the body and healing to the soul. Use gracious words. <laughs> this isn't a proof text saying, wow, that really works. Sarcasm is used in the Bible, but it is reserved for the kind of danger of the human soul where we are completely blind and oblivious to something that we need to be shamed out into the open. And God himself does it because he loves his people. He's willing to do anything to, to open up their eyes, to, to wake them up and to bring them from their slumber and say, do you understand the danger that you're in? And so there are places in the Bible where God mocks his people. He's not unkind, he's loving. Isaiah chapter 54 is, is one of the, the most outstanding passages of Scripture where this kind of rhetorical device of use, is used of sarcasm where God mocks his people for, for worshiping people, uh, pieces of wood. Go ahead, cut down a tree, and first of all, uh, make sure that you cut enough wood into firewood that you have enough uh, fuel to roast your food to eat so you don't starve, and then, yeah, go ahead from the rest of that same piece of wood, go ahead and make yourself a god bow down and worship to it, and worship it. <laughs> you get the point. Elijah on Mount Carmel. <laughs> Again, one of the, 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 the famous passages of, of sarcasm in the scripture to the prophets of Baal. Call louder, cut yourself deeper. Perhaps he's sleeping, you need to arouse him and wake him up, or perhaps he's relieving himself, or perhaps he's being amused elsewhere. No, sarcasm is used in the scripture when it is reserved for the kind of sins that are systemic to human nature and which we are often blind to. And that sin is pride. See, pride isn't merely a slight moral blemish on the human character and the human condition. Pride is an addiction in the human spirit. And have you ever tried to help somebody who is in the grips of addiction? Do you know the kind of courage that it takes? Do you kind of know the kind of suffering that you will have to go through if you endeavor to embrace the kind of loving kindness that it takes to rid someone of addiction? You will weep. Like the prophets wept for Israel. I was reading Jeremiah chapter 13 this week where the prophet is told to take a loincloth and go and hide it under a rock and then a few weeks later go get it and the loincloth is wrecked. And the Lord says this. He says, I made you like a cloth that was to cling to me. The most intimate kind of garment that was to be so very, very close to me. But you've become too big for me. You've puffed yourself up. And you won't listen to me. Your foreheads are solid towards me. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah says. He says, I weep for my people. I weep for their pride. Jesus himself wept for his people who were obstinate in their pride. They didn't want a lowly Messiah from Nazareth. 
They wanted things that were greater, of more grandeur than a, a simple, lowly prophet like Jesus. <clears throat> and so he wept also over Jerusalem. And so Paul says, you lucky Corinthians, you, you, you lucky people without us, already you have arrived, already you've, you've got all of these things as if the Lord's kingdom had come and we are left on the outside. And Paul uses words, this is significant. The words that Paul uses aren't random. The words that Paul uses to describe the condition of himself and the Corinthians are, are very carefully taken from the ideals of Greek and Hellenistic culture. Now, that's probably not something new to you. It's not new to me. Where people take, this is the hybrid that I was talking about. This is, this is the grafting that I was talking about. And it's, it, it's a veneer of religion. But it, the religion is used to make things that they think will make them happy look acceptable. And this, these are the things that were acceptable in Greek culture. These are the things that people wanted. If, if you're going to have wisdom, these are the things that will demonstrate your wisdom. Okay? And we do that. Things like self-sufficiency. You have all that you want, he says. Power. You're reigning. You have crowns on your head. You've got, you've got authority. You've got wealth. All of these things. And it's it's above the word that the apostle had given them. And then he uses words to describe his wisdom. And again, his words are chosen carefully, not for the things in Greek culture that were, were uh, prized, but for the things in Greek culture that were despised. And he takes all of the things that, that you could imagine that, that you would look down upon somebody in a culture and he, 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 he puts those clothes onto himself and he says, look at me. Those things were reserved for slaves in Corinthian culture. Manual labor. Paul, you have to work? I mean, you go, to, you go to the baths, not to hang out with people, but because you actually stink? Is that why? Manual labor? Uh, a need for income? Well, you're not, you're not wealthy. You've got to work to, to sustain yourself. Fighting for one's life in the Colosseum to entertain the crowds. And did you notice when it was read, the... the the, the breadth of the spectrum of the audience that, that looked down onto the spectacle that was, that was down below, and he describes that the heaven and angels are, are, are watching. He says, you Corinthians, you're up in the stands. You're, you're being entertained, and you're, and you're watching, simply being amused by the kind of wisdom that I am walking in and that you are despising. You don't have the power or the authority to condemn anybody but you just meekly accept things. In fact, you, you turn around and you turn the other cheek and you bless people that are cruel to you. What kind of fool are you? That's not a man's man religion. 
There's no power in that whatsoever. See, the cross is a message for the church about the forgiveness of sins. But it's not only a message. It's also a path for discipleship. The wisdom of God actually embraces the character of the cross. And those who profess Christ, those who hang crosses out front of their buildings, become highly ironic if they don't embrace the kind of understanding of the cross, what the cross brings to us and its wisdom and its status in this world. So the apostle did not just bring them outward. He's not a, a steward and, and explaining to them the mysteries of the gospel, not just a word for how to live, but he gave them the word in how to live. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the sufficiency of the people that God tapped on the shoulder, more than tapped on the shoulder, flooded their path with light and said, you are my instrument. You are the person that I will bring the gospel to the Gentiles through. Do you have anybody else like that in your life? I'm not that person. The messenger of God, through whom is understood the mysteries of God. And what the Apostle Paul said in the previous chapter, and, and he says that, that I lay a foundation, and he says, he says this words, and looking back upon it, you can take it in a little bit of different light. And he said, take care. Take care how anybody builds upon the foundation that I have laid, for, the for what is built will be tested by, by fire. Take care. Have you ever... <laughs> have you ever been stopped by somebody and reprimanded by somebody who has tremendous authority and power and yet meekness and humility and they simply say take care Barry take care you see Paul doesn't want glory for himself he doesn't want Pauline Christians <laughs> he wants people who voluntarily understand what's going on in their life and begin to follow Christ to give glory to God, not to Paul. It's never Paul's religion. It's all about Christ. I'm going to take a moment and give a word of application here. And I want to point out something about Paul's wisdom. Okay? As help guides. How do you know? How do you identify a fellowship of God's people that has God's wisdom? And the one of the words I like to use in my own personal life, it's helped me a lot, is the word congruency or the word alignment or the word integrity. It's something I care about a lot and I think it's something that you should care about a lot about. Does the place where we have fellowship or the place that we worship God together, is there an alignment with the things that we say that we believe and the things that we actually do? Is there an integrity to the way that our Lord lived and the way that we understand our own calling in this world? And so I'm going to point out these three simple things. The first one is a submission to God's word. 
and a poverty of human wisdom. Like the proverb says, this is, this is God's word. Don't change it. <laughs> Lest he rebuke you. Proverbs 30 verse 5. A submission to God's word and, and a poverty of, of human wisdom. Even our Lord lived in this kind of submission to his Father as he said that he had no words of his own. He lived entirely in submission that the words that he spoke were not his own words. They were only entirely the words of his Father. That's the kind of submission that our Lord himself lived in. He did not go above the word of his Father. And so don't syncretize your wisdom with God's wisdom. Don't go above. Don't puff yourself up. Secondly, a meekness of spirit and a willingness to suffer. This should be really, really easy and clear for us to, to see. Our, our Lord is the omnipotent God, the maker of all things, and they spat upon him. We just went through Easter. He's the one who demonstrated to them that he has all authority over all of creation, all of illness and, 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 the, and the elements and disease and all of things, even death itself, and they spit on him, and they mocked him. They spoke the ultimate blasphemy to our Lord, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is attributing the works of the Spirit to the devil. They said what he does is by the devil. And he spoke gracious words to them. They reviled, and he blessed. And Jesus taught at the Last Supper, when he was about to lay his life down and he had this little object lesson for his apostles, he says, don't, don't integrate. Don't, don't, don't try to syncretize the thinking of the Gentiles, like, like places like Corinth. Don't try to integrate the way that they think and the way that you're going to think as my disciples. Be willing to be small. Thirdly, there is an earth wariness, earth weary and heaven bentness. Our Lord embraced meekness, not out of some stoic ideal. He wasn't dead on the inside, quite the opposite. He wasn't trying to make a statement of how humble that he could be, but he grasped a future glory. He grasped a glory that, that was future. It's a, it's, a, it's a transferred glory, I guess, how you would describe it. And that's the only way that the Apostle Paul could describe the circumstances in which he lives, saying, I've, we've received this at the hand of God, knowing that, that there is a glory awaiting. For the glory set before him, the scripture says, he endured the cross. Have you got any glory set before you? Is your mansion earthly or heavenly? Paul says it's better to depart and be with Christ. No, he says it's better by far. It's better by far to depart and be with Christ. I was in a men's group this week, and the leader said, you know, I, I'm so blessed by these groups that I go to. I can just sit and be on the receiving end. He says, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We've got very little glory set before us. So in conclusion, a healthy gospel loving church is that what you want that's what i want i don't want a church for church sake i want a, a healthy gospel loving church that that voluntarily seeks to forsake the ideals of wisdom in the world around me and walk in the paths of god's wisdom as as he reveals them and as his messengers have revealed them in the cross
understanding that it's, it's not, the cross isn't just our message, it's also our path. And it's voluntarily. See, Paul's, Paul's message and his, and, his, and his method show so much integrity that he doesn't want them to follow Paul for his glory. He doesn't want them to follow some wisdom that would give them glory. He wants them to embrace a wisdom that gives God glory. What an opportunity. What a vocation on earth. And so the Apostle Paul will go on in this book to talk about wisdom, God's wisdom. Are you ready? Are you ready for it? It's not going to be that easy. He's going to talk about our sexuality. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about gender. He's going to talk about worship. He's going to talk about worldly witness. Not out of some institutional power trip to control people. Not of some idea to brainwash people. Look at this is how you have to live. Be like, <clears throat> be like this. But as an instrument of God's purpose showing us what the wisdom of the cross really looks like. Do you trust the apostle? Will you not puff yourself up against this kind of wisdom and build a palace for yourself, but embrace and walk in the paths that God has for us in the cross? Would you please stand with me? I'm going to read, finish by reading from Psalm 34. <clears throat> God's word, Psalm 34. We'll sing in just a moment. Please hear the word of the Lord again. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Notice where the boast is. Let the humble hear and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Let's sing together. God help us.